0: It's March 15th, 2020, and this is the first of what hopefully will be not too many more um, Teishos or Dharma talks um, given in a Zendo that is mostly empty. Um, if, uh, If anyone... had uh if anyone had yet not not yet caught on to the seriousness of this pandemic uh, this is a, a, another sign of uh, how how uh, strange a time it is this is this is the first for me i've i've never I've never been in the zendo with so few people for for Taisho in my whole career. Uh, Those of you who are listening remotely from our uh, live streaming, we miss you. We miss you here. Uh, But uh, thanks for being with us remotely. Hopefully, uh, you can be back with us before too much longer. So again, today, I'll be talking about the pandemic, the coronavirus. I can't see really talking about anything else. Uh, There's been a lot about, a lot of attention to the, the uh, run on toilet paper and Kleenex and other paper products and hand sanitizer. Uh, And uh, what is that? What is, what is going on? It's, I've read that it's completely unnecessary that uh it's not like our supermarkets and uh pharmacies are going to stop stocking the stores. <clears throat> um, I think it's a uh, it's a response to uh, well of course fear but anxiety we 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 respond to our anxieties in different ways. Uh, And uh, an extraordinary event like this pandemic uh, offers us, gives us a glimpse into uh, our vulnerabilities, a reminder of our vulnerabilities. Uh, In that respect, it's kind of a test run for how we might uh, deal with the phenomena we encounter in the bardo, the the uh, intermediate state between death of the body and uh, rebirth. That's when we are sure to face our vulnerabilities, our fears, anxieties, uh, our our tendency at grasping out of self-interest. That's what this is, this uh, stockpiling of, of things. In Buddhism we have the what we call the three poisons greed, ill will in its many forms. Often we 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 translate it as anger, but it can be ill will, hostility, anger, enmity. That's the second. And the third is delusion or confusion. And uh there's a, some, some text attributed to the Buddha where he said that <clears throat> each one of us uh, tends to default into one of those three more than the other two. We uh, That's our vulnerability. There are greed types and there are um, hostility types or irritability, annoyance. There are a lot of synonyms for that second one and then there are the types of <clears throat> who uh sort of succumb to confusion <clears throat> uh in the book i read about that that text uh the author suggested that you can get a sense of this if you if you've noticed that when you walk into a room of uh let's say people i think that's the implication there'd be peop- people in the room uh the the greed type would, would tend to be oriented toward what I can how I can uh work the room, how what I can get out of others and the room. The uh the dilute the ill will type will be what finding fault with people or things, the the furnishings, the, the art, the temperature uh, and so forth. And uh, the delusion type uh, would be neither of those, but just just kind of fog up into uh, a state of confusion.
1: Uh,
0: we wouldn't want anyone to spend any time dwelling on what which type they are. But it's <clears throat> it's another it's another uh, a way of accessing self knowledge, noticing. It's a form of mindfulness. How do we respond to uh, entirely new circumstances? How do we manage uh, what could otherwise be uh, difficult and and anxiety-provoking? Of course, a a very common form of managing anxiety is to uh, succumb to substance abuse, drug or alcohol, in uh, in compulsive personalities uh, one symptom is hand washing but uh, we won't go there uh, because this is the time to be washing hands with either soap or hand sanitizer it would seem though that ass wiping is another concern that people have in buying all that toilet paper there was, someone sent me a cartoon showing a uh, Uh, The four members of four Grim Reapers uh, in their hooded uh, outfits with a scythes on horseback and three of them uh, are looking back at the fourth. The fourth has has under his arm about two big giant rolls of toilet paper. And uh, one of the others is looking back at him and saying, really? Another response to anxiety is uh, coming up with conspiracy theories I'm dredging the internet for conspiracy theories and then passing them on to others. And then there's just plain old raw grasping at what one fears one could be without. We heard recently in one of our meetings with... Uh, our Sangha physicians to to uh, strategize about these next weeks or months we heard that uh, these ma- these hygienic masks are being stolen uh, from hospitals i I inferred that that meant by staff uh same with hand sanitizer, but the real story of hand sanitizing uh came out um it was uh, I think, a New York Times article uh, where a couple of enterprising brothers, uh, ecocentric enterprising brothers, uh, realized early on, earlier this winter, that uh, they could uh, profit by uh, sucking up the supply of uh, hand sanitizers, masks and wipes and stuff and sucking it up and selling it at a huge profit. So uh, they did that. They drove, uh, in this particular case, there are others, they drove through Tennessee and Kentucky uh, many weeks ago and uh, bought up 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer alone and then stocked it in their, uh, some warehouse or something, and then sold it at... uh, 5 times, 10 times, even 15 times the cost, their cost. And then finally, uh, under growing criticism from uh, customers of Amazon and eBay and also from regulators, uh, those two uh, platforms remove these listings uh, for these things. And now these guys are stuck with warehouses full of hand sanitizer so forth. Another article that I picked up was uh, titled, We Need Social Solidarity, Not Just Social Distancing. The author is uh, Eric uh, Kleinenberg, I think, a sociologist. Uh, This this article came out yesterday. He wrote a book about the uh, the great Chicago heat wave of 1995 uh, when uh, social social isolation among older people in poor, segregated, and abandoned neighborhoods made the heat wave far more lethal than it should have been. Social isolation was a leading risk factor and social connections made the difference between life and death. I'm reading some sentences here from the article. Uh, Here's one. In addition to social distancing, societies have often drawn on another resource to survive disasters and pandemics. Social solidarity or the interdependence between individuals and across groups. This, he says, is an essential tool for combating infectious diseases and other collective threats. Solidarity motivates us to promote public health, not just our own personal security. It keeps us from hoarding medicine, toughing out a cold in the workplace, or sending a sick child to school. So all three of those are not advisable medicine or toughing out the cold, potentially uh, infecting others, and same with sending a sick child to school. It compels us to let a ship of stranded people dock in our safe harbors, as was at first not done outside San Francisco, and to knock on our older neighbor's door. I was very much heartened by uh, an offer from from some of the staff yesterday uh, that to help as they might be able to in the uh, help out those in the uh, wider sangha outside of staff uh, to be available to help uh, as as needed and uh, want to be sure that those of you who aren't on staff who aren't in this room <laughs> uh, know that to take us up on that. One more paragraph from this article, it's an open question whether Americans have have enough social solidarity to stave off the worst possibilities of the coronavirus pandemic. There's ample reason to be skeptical. We are politically divided, socially fragmented, skeptical of one another's basic facts and news sources. The federal government has failed to prepare for the crisis. The President and his staff have repeatedly dissembled about the mounting dangers to our health and security. Distrust and confusion are rampant. In this context, people take extreme measures to protect themselves and their families. Concern for the common good diminishes. We put ourselves, not America, first. We might, uh, might like to think, and maybe we're right, that none of us would do such things, that we would not be stockpiling and profiteering and, and uh, ignoring those in, in need. But how do we know? How do we know? And it's a reminder of uh, the nature of the self. How do we know who we really are? Buddhism teaches that the the self such as it is what we call the self is a re- relational thing. It's it's not one fixed thing. There is no substance to what we call the self. It uh can change the way we behave, the way we react it can be very different depending on the context depending on The circumstances we find ourselves in, we change under stress. We change. We can surprise ourselves. We can surprise ourselves at how we have failed to live up to what we would like to be able to do. What we call the true self, Buddha nature and so forth, is really no-self. That's what we, we recite in the Hakuen Chan. This true self that is no-self. It's not, it's not that our true self is basically good. No. There's no basic other than empty, non-substantial, Unfixed. And so we cultivate practices like meditation and chanting and rituals and and various things based on generosity to um, reinforce habits that come out of our better nature. What's what training is to fortify ourselves against our worst instincts, our these instinctual drives, our, our animal selves? I think it's important to have eyes wide open about this. Buddhism does not Zen does not teach that we're all inherently good. Nowhere is that in, in Buddhist teaching what we find is that we can be many things but by attending to uh, our, our our habitual reactions by noticing the ways in which we succumb to our worst instincts uh, then we can just do just that we can we cultivate the better side and and then we're we're uh, ready to draw from what is, what is most uh, generous and noble in ourselves when we're under stress. There is a. <clears throat> uh, Story about a new uh, phenomenon in Italy that went viral. uh, About um, well, in Italy, you know, they're they're probably been the worst, uh, hardest hit, certainly of the European countries. Uh, We don't know for sure about Iran. Uh, China was very hardly hard hit too, but they clamped down in a way that uh, that Italy didn't at first, and so. In Italy, they everything's, everything's on lockdown. All schools, bars, and restaurants are closed. And Italians uh, are essentially under house arrest for all intents and purposes. So what do they do with that? What's happening is that under lockdown, song has been breaking out from the rooftops, the balconies, and the windows see and hear pianos, trumpets, guitars, violins, serenades, and even the clanging of pots and pans. I ran across an Italian proverb years years ago that I fished out this morning. Uh, If the house is on fire, let us warm ourselves. And they even, a lot of these Italians uh, had a, a, a round of applause nationwide from the southern islands to the northern border. A round of applause for the doctors and other medical health care workers on the, on the front lines. And for example, nurses collapsing from exhaustion their faces bruised from tightly-sealed masks. Bodhisattvas. Who would claim that bodhisattvas don't exist?
1: One uh, one article
0: I read uh, suggested that the Italians uh, weeks ago were just reluctant to uh, resistant to uh, to adhere to social uh, social distancing. Uh, that they uh, wanted to keep going out to their bars and cafes and restaurants and so forth and their uh, other mass gatherings. And that was one one of the problems. Um, an article from uh, yesterday uh, from the New York Times says, please don't go out to brunch today. Gathering in groups right now is selfish and puts the lives of others at risk. We talked yesterday uh, to the staff about taking this very seriously and trying to find the restraint just during these next, who knows, that's that's what's so anxiety provoking to so many people is we don't know how long it'll be. But for now, to find the self-restraint not to be going out to cafes and restaurants, much less bars, don't know what people on staff would be doing going out to bars. certainly not a a way to use uh, this um, sort of quasi-monastic structure that we have here. But if, if you feel compelled, you're getting cabin fever and you feel compelled to go out and get a coffee or Uh, a, a restaurant to be exceedingly, exceedingly careful. Just bathe in hand sanitizer and wash your hands every five minutes. Do something. Take every measure you possibly can so you don't bring it back here or anywhere else. But this is where the staff live, most of the staff it's it's it must be hard for young people to take this as seriously as older people because they're just not as vulnerable to this particular pandemic unlike the one of 1918 when it struck down mostly younger people in this article about don't go out to brunch today um it is particularly uh timed for the uh, this Uh, St. Patrick's Day weekend. Um, He says, continuing the weekend tradition of packing the bars is selfish and reckless during this pandemic. It will speed up the spread of the virus, increasing the suffering for older and more vulnerable people and for the medical workers who will be caring for them. Let's not make the job any harder for the bodhisattvas in the medical community. Though the virus appears dramatically less fatal for those under 50, younger, healthier people can still contract the virus, not show symptoms, and infect at-risk populations. And then he quotes a, uh, a uh, lecture in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard, modeling, that means Adhering to this, these, modeling suggests that the impact of distant oh no, excuse me, modeling here means uh, computer models and other other uh, research. Modeling suggests that the impact of distancing among low-risk people is more important to decrease transmission than its impact for high-risk people who move around less. And then I, he quotes a, an evolutionary biologist, uh, who said how low-risk individuals are crucial to flattening the curve of the epidemic. The idea is simple. If low-risk people don't socially distance, then the entire containment process is not effective. Generally, there are fewer high-risk individuals, the, risk, the, the sick and the elderly, and they don't tend to move around as much as lower-risk individuals. Therefore... It's more likely that a low-risk individual will expose a high-risk individual to the virus. And then he acknowledges, the author acknowledges, that wanting to socialize right now is understandable. People are stressed. But the consequences are dire. Just look at Italy, a country thought to be a week to 10 days ahead of the United States in its outbreak. Where the healthcare system is collapsing under the strain of new cases. In the Boston Globe a couple of days ago, the Italian journalist Mattia Ferraresi offered a chilling warning to U.S. readers not to follow Italy's lead. This is what he or she said Many of us were too selfish to change our behavior, he wrote. Now we're in lockdown. And people are needlessly dying so the challenge then is how to yes how to to distance socially without uh, ignoring the fact that uh, we need As that article said, we need social solidarity, not just social distancing. I think each person can figure out for herself or himself what that social solidarity might mean and how you could um, help sustain it. It's a nice little uh, statement uh, I came across about SOAP. At the molecular level, it breaks things apart. At the level of society, it helps hold everything together. So we've talked about uh, the rather disheartening signs of fear and grasping with uh, clearing out all the supermarkets and um, I also heard the other day I heard David Brooks a columnist for the New York Times saying that he's been reading lately about earlier pandemics and that it's not pretty that people as the as it goes on people tend to be uh, driven by fear and and grasping. I heard somewhere that the great pandemic of 1918, so-called Spanish flu, uh, that that happened plenty in that pandemic. I'm not sure. I probably shouldn't even repeat that because I'm not sure about it. But uh, And then we have the Great Alaska Earthquake of 1964. Now this is the other side of things. It's the worst earthquake ever on American soil. It registered 9.2 on the Richter scale. And uh, a long article in the New York Times goes into what happened, how people responded. It's, uh, the article is called, This is How You Live When the World Falls Apart, by a John Muallam. And this is from three days ago. Of course, every, all hell broke loose. Maybe some of you have seen photos uh, of the, the mass uh, disruption, uh, buildings collapsing, the ground rising up. And I'm just going to pull out a few paragraphs. Um, So much had suddenly scrambled. The future was unclear. During those four and a half minutes, Anchorage seemed to be passing fitfully through an inflection point in history. Life was ripping into a before and an after. One man recalled, even in those moments while the earthquake was still shaking the earth, I kept thinking, what will Alaskans do now? This is what many of us are thinking right now about our own country, broadly speaking. The article goes on, maybe you've, you've lived through a natural disaster like this. Maybe you've just lived through the last couple of weeks or the last few years. Increasingly, daily life feels suffused, with similar unpredictability. A quiet quivering that surges again and again into a shock. Another constitutional check or political norm is shamelessly shattered. Another wildfire leaps the highway. The virus scatters beyond the latest isolated case. We all know there are moments when the world we take for granted instantaneously changes, when reality is abruptly upended and the unimaginable overwhelms real life. We don't walk around thinking about it, but we know that instability is always there. At random and without warning, a kind of terrible magic can switch on and scramble our lives. Uh we can be sure from from reading the history of just even just of of, of Zen and china japan that uh they were they went through periods of terrible terrible dislocation um, yes, civil wars were a big thing, but also famine i've had that phrase there's a f- uh, the translator used a phrase about a certain famine in, in uh, during the day of one of the Chinese masters in uh, maybe the Tang Dynasty a thousand years ago, don't know. He said, famine stalked the land. This has come back to me in the last week or two about this pandemic stalking the land. No wonder people are afraid. And then, and then, skipping some paragraphs, they sent a, a team of sociologists to, right away, they sent them to Anchorage to find out how people would react. Uh, they expected uh, looting and uh, hoarding and all kinds of terrible behavior, but when they got there, just 28 hours after the earthquake, they discovered the opposite. The community was meeting the situation with a staggering amount of collaboration and compassion. By daybreak the following morning, hundreds of volunteers had spontaneously converged on the city's combined police and fire station, similarly, similarly eager to pitch in. No one in the city government had anticipated this onrush or put any system in place to manage it. The conventional wisdom was that in a disaster, authorities had to worry about hordes of civilians chaotically fleeing the hardest hit area. Here everyone was piling in to help. Something surprising had been shaken loose in Anchorage, a dormant capacity, even an impulse for people to come together and care for one another that felt largely inaccessible in ordinary life. And that's that's one of the silver linings in our current pandemic, is a feeling of solidarity. I've heard this from from a number of people and felt it myself. There is a sense, there is a sense of we're in this together. We're in this together. Reading on in this article about Alaska, uh, it's there in front of you, so you do it. A nurse would later explain She could find no more incisive theory to account for all the cooperation she'd witnessed during the quake mrs fleming had found herself on a thrashing staircase and seeing a teetering child in front of her instinctively tucked him under her arm and strained to keep them both steady decades later at age 93 the one cogent thought she could remember having through those four and a half minutes was, I'm thankful I'm here. I'm thankful I'm here so I can hold on to this little guy. There's a koan in the Blue Cliff Record where someone asks the Master, what use does the bodhisattva kanon make of all those hands and eyes? So that's one rendering of the, the bodhisattva of compassion is showing with many arms and many eyes. The eyes, of course, to see where the need is, see those who are in need of help, and then the arms are to respond, to reach out. And then the master's response is one of the most exquisite lines in the all of the koans he said in response he said it is like one reaching back in the middle of the night with outstretched hand for the pillow is it conscious is it unconscious or something else It is we could, call, we could call that our true nature, our true self. We don't have to call it good when it's just responding to what needs to be done. We don't have to see it as virtuous. This is not so uncommon. Uh, the feeling that when the people who do these heroic things, well, what we think of as heroic, the man jumping in the Potomac River when a plane went down, uh, just without hesitation, Um, and other remarkable stories, they, they can't explain themselves. It wasn't an intention. It wasn't consciously thought out. It's just responding where help is needed. Back to the article. Watching the slow, menacing spread of a virus is altogether different from reacting to the obvious instantaneous shock of a quake for most of us the danger of this unfolding disaster is still invisible and diffuse and yet any resilient and successful response has to be rooted in the same profound feelings of interconnectedness that arose instantaneously in Anchorage some pervasive embracing obligation to one another and our collective story." Uh, He says, we can't afford to feel that canceling a school band concert or suspending a basketball season is a withering retreat. We must see them as parts of an empowered, collaborative undertaking. This is uh, this is also dawned on me after we had to cancel the sashine. I felt really quite sh- unsettled. Uh, never before having seen that in my life, having had to cancel a whole Sashin. But then, as time went on, I did see this as. A part of an empowered, collaborative undertaking. We are coming together, he says, to keep our distance. If we want to stop our world from shaking, we need to find in even the tiniest of these acts the same meaning and immediacy, the same togetherness and purpose that Mrs. Fleming felt holding on to that little boy. He goes on, you'd be forgiven for feeling pessimistic for dismissing what happened in a small Alaskan city long ago as quaint and far less possible in our society now. And yet, in the 56 years since the great Alaska earthquake, an entire field of sociology, disaster studies, blossomed around the disaster research center with sociologists parachuting into scores of other communities after natural disasters around the world and it's stunning to look back and recognize how much of the resilience, level-headedness, kindness, and cooperation those sociologists saw in Anchorage turned out to be characteristic of disasters everywhere. Many of our ugliest assumptions about human behavior have been refuted by their observations of how actual humans behave though we seem tragically slow to shed those old myths. In 1975, eleven years after their work in Alaska, two of the Disaster Research Center's founders speculated about why they continued to find essentially the same scenario repeating itself. Why, rather than encouraging conflict or violence, these catastrophes appear to bring out the best in people. And this is what they came up with. In ordinary times, we suffer alone. Any acute experience of our own vulnerability can isolate us or even make us resentful of others. The victim often feels discriminated against since there are others who have been spared. But a disaster affects everyone and peels us away from mundane matters to the very issue of human life itself. When danger, loss, and suffering become a public phenomenon, they went on, all those who share in the experience are brought together in a very powerful psychological sense. An unrelenting immediacy sets in. Worries about the past and future are unrealistic when judged against the realities of the moment, they wrote, and distinctions between people fall away, leaving only quote, human beings responding to one another as human beings thrown altogether in one unrelenting present. We are made to recognize in one another what we deny most vehemently about ourselves. In the end, It's our vulnerability that connects us. The article wraps up with uh, um, a report on many boxes of things that had been salvaged from that earthquake. Photographs, mementos, personal belongings... The author writes, here it was, all the joys and agonies of one person's life, but so blurred and compressed that it was impossible not to recognize the form that all lives assume from such a telescopic distance, a forgettable blip, a meaningless straight line from birth to death. And yet I also knew that, sealed inside this minuscule segment of that line, this vulnerable little snow globe we call the present. Life feels anything but forgettable and meaningless, and it somehow, recognizing the starkness of these boundaries, enriches the fragile space we occupy within them, imbues it with immediacy, legitimacy, and preciousness. It liberates us into the present, just as a disaster does, and gives us the opportunity to expand those boundaries the only way we can, laterally, by connecting our lives to the lives of others, by thatching our lives together like a net. Just a couple more sentences, uh, but for myself... uh, among the many things that we can discover during this remarkable time, uh, two two paradoxical discoveries are that that for, for people who are not on staff, that Zazen at home, we have to learn to do, to sit at home, as well as at the center. That uh, can't be people at home can't be dependent on a, a this zendo to do their sitting. I do hear from time to time from people who report that that uh, they haven't gotten here as often as they they wanted. And then when I poke around a little bit, they acknowledge that they're not sitting at home; they just sit here. That's that's here's a chance now in this this coming period of time to buckle down and learn that you're not dependent on this zendo to do your sitting. And then the other discovery that's possible is to discover what a gift it is to have this zendo, to have others to, to sit with here. It is really a remarkable thing. As, as out-of-town people, uh, p- people who are is- uh, geographically isolated, know, as I did my first year of sitting, um, how how remarkable it is to be able to sit with others when you finally do have a sangha to sit with. I'm hoping that, that people won't just get out of the habit of coming here during this period, this spring and summer, but uh, may, may find that this just... Um, Dramatizes or or clarifies uh, how how helpful it is to sit with others, not just for one's own sake, but as a contribution to people sitting here together. This is this is not the same sitting with a dozen people here. It it in, in it is has an intimacy that a full zendo doesn't have, and that's that's kind of nice, but. It's not the same as having people gathering here, contributing their own energy, their own concentration together in one room, the way Zen practice has been done for hundreds and hundreds of years in monasteries and temples. All right, our time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows.
1: I, I vow to break endless blind I passions, I, passions. I, I, Udhava, I, I vow to bow brute dharma against beyond measure I, I vow to penetrate the I great way of, the way of Buddha